And, um, and there's a subset that will have mast cell activation syndrome genetically from, from early right. on, from birth. And there will be people who will develop MCAS after an acute assault on their body from whether it's a, it's an infection or a stressor or some, some, um, some exposure to a, to a chemical. Um, the potential for MCAS was there, but they didn't have it. But that thing, that trigger, brought it out. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and joining me again today for a second time from New York is Dr. Tanya Dempsey. Welcome back, Tanya. Oh, thanks for having me, Nathan. My uh, absolute pleasure. So, Dr. Dempsey, we caught up, I think, it's about 18, um, 24 months ago, and you spoke at our Congress. It seems like with COVID, everything seems um, skewed. It's hard to remember anything. But um, (laughs) You joined us a couple of years ago in person at our Congress and you spoke about female hormones. Uh, and at our, on our previous podcast, we spoke about mast cell activation syndrome or MCAS. And it's been a few years since we caught up and I want to get an update on MCAS. Um, there's there's some links to MCAS and COVID. Um, and it's also MCAS may masquerade as some common clinical conditions that practitioners often treat. So I thought, yeah, we'd catch up and have an update. So... Um, for those who missed the first podcast, perhaps could you just give a little outline of your background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am trained uh, as an internist, um, but I have a, uh, a practice that's really focused on uh, complex chronic diseases in an integrative way. Um, actually, my new practice um, is is called AIM. AIM Center for Personalized Medicine, and we actually just um, just moved into a new office and um, and and created this new center, really, really um, focused on complex chronic diseases, including mast cell activation syndrome, um, as well as um, other uh, autoimmune diseases and um, and even. Lyme and tick-borne diseases. We co- we cover a lot of ground there. So so that's my background. Um, you know, I discovered, so to speak. I mean, I didn't discover MCAS, but I guess I I realized that um, that it was a cause of underlying cause of many of my patients' problems. Um, you know, somewhere around uh, six seven years ago, um, give or take. And uh, you know, since then, I think it's uh, it's been hard to to not see MCAS in so many of, of the patients who continue to be ill and symptomatic um, despite, you know, our best efforts. And so, um, you know, that's why I really love talking about it because I think that when practitioners um, have that light bulb go off like it did for me, um, it really does, you know, really uh, make such a difference in terms of patient care and, and, and the results that you get. Absolutely. And yeah, we'll dive into MCAS um, and uh, to help illustrate why you feel that it's so important to recognize and, and treat. Uh, I did have a question. I believe that um, Dr. Lawrence Afrin has joined you. So um, for yeah. those who follow MCAS, no, he's the he's one of the world leading researchers in MCAS. And I think he was an MD originally, but he had been in academia for 
decades for my understanding and you've managed to coax him out of academia essentially to to come practice with you so uh, i want to see how's that transition gone for him because i imagine it's a, a bit of a shift and what has he learned what have you learned about integrative medicine and academia and i think you're publishing as well at the same time oh yeah oh it's been it's been amazing he's been he's been um, with me, uh, it's it's actually three years already, wow. um, and uh, and we you know we're we're just so excited about the work that we're doing. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of clinical work, and we're we're seeing patients you know um, all week, but we're also um, very committed to um, the research efforts, and we're working on creating a research institute um, as an offshoot of our practice. But in the meantime, you know, we're trying to publish as much as we can, the data that we have. And so um, I've, uh, we've published on uh, some women's health issues and, and mass cell activation syndrome. We published on um, new diagnostic criteria that we believe is better for the diagnosis of mass cell activation uh-huh. syndrome. And uh, he recently um, uh, published a, a basically an editorial or, or just an opinion piece on on COVID and mass cell activation syndrome, and then I have another paper coming out with him shortly. So, um, so we're really excited about getting the word out. I think you know the challenge with being in clinical practice and not in academia is that in academia you you have to do the research and you have you have to publish, and that sets the standards for for patient care. And so when you're in, in clinical practice, what happens is that um, ac- the academics don't necessarily want to take you seriously, even though you're doing the work yeah. that is, you know, more than is more than even what they're doing. So we've really tried to up the ante. And even though we're not in an academic center, we are very committed to research and the, the treatments, the diagnostic criteria, everything we're doing in the world of, of mass cell activation syndrome and just in general complex uh, multi-systemic diseases um, needs to be, you know, um, validated and, and, and published. And so that's what we're, we've been working on. And it's been, it's been really amazing. Mm, it's exciting. I can't wait to see some of those papers. Um, so maybe just a bit of a, a recap on muscle activation syndrome. Um, so what's your sort of elevator speech on on the sort of the pathophysiology of MCAS? So, you know, I think the, the way to think about um, MCAS is, is I think first you have to distinguish um, what's normal in the body and what's abnormal. So MCAS is really an abnormal state. It's, a, it's an activation syndrome. It's a syndrome, right? So patients have, in a syndrome, have many, many um, uh, manifestations and, and different organ systems affected. But, um, but I think it's important to know what mast cells do um, physiologically, um, you know, mm. in a normal person, right? So mast cells are really part of your innate immune system, the primitive immune system. And so they will react to the environment. They will react to, to foreign um, particles in the air, um, whether it's, you know, uh, let's say a pesticide that's being, um, aerosolized or, or infections that are in the air. There's so many things that mast cells are, are really designed to, to fight. And so I think it, particularly now in the, in the age of COVID, I like to just kind of make a, make a point of saying that anyone who gets COVID or the flu or Lyme disease or anything else will get activation of their mast cells, in efforts to, to deal with that acute 
uh, assault on the body. And, um, and so that's normal. Um, mm. What happens in mast cell activation syndrome is that the mast cells uh, don't ever um, go back. Don't, then, uh, how do I say this? So in the, in the, in the circumstances when they are um, activated for an infection, for instance, once the infection is taken care of, they'll reset. They'll go back to normal. In MCAS, um, they never really reset. They don't go back to normal. They are um, inappropriately activated and they are... They, they just will continue degranulating, causing inflammation, and without, if you don't intervene and stop them, they just continue to sort of cause systemic, multi-systemic inflammation mm. and damage. Um, so I think the way I, I think it's important to understand is that, that lots of, everybody has mast cells, but there's a subset of the population that have mast cell activation syndrome. And, um, and there's a subset that will have mast cell activation syndrome genetically from, from early right. on, from birth. And there will be people who will develop MCAS after an acute assault on their body from whether it's a, it's an infection or a stressor or some, some, um, some exposure to a, to a chemical. Um, the potential for MCAS was there, but they didn't have it. But that thing, that trigger brought it out. And so I call that, that's really secondary MCAS. And we hope that in those instances, you treat the issue and MCAS resets. And in primary MCAS, it's a lifelong issue. And it's, it's a lifelong uh, um, way of, uh, that you need to, you need to um, yeah, lifelong uh, approach that you need to take in, in treatment. Fascinating. Um so I, I believe up to 17% of the population in in some of the Western countries studied may have MCAS. Um, firstly, yeah, can you comment on that? And second, do you know what distributional proportion would be primary versus secondary? Yeah, the second part of your question um, is, yeah, we don't, we don't know um, what the breakdown right. is. Um, and it really depends on you know, what research you, you look at, you know, some of us would argue that primary is actually more prevalent than secondary. Um, but we can't, you know, we don't have the proof for that, sure. but that's suggestive from, from our own clinical experience as well. Um, but yeah, the, the literature, um, so the study really came out of Germany, um, that looked at their, um, their population and, and they estimated it looked like about 17% of, of, the population mm. of Germany, which is you know, very similar to, to most Western countries, um, was 17%. And so we just sort of extrapolate. Um, you know, we would argue, those of us who treated would argue that it may even be more prevalent than that. There's going to be, there are going to be people who are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. So these are patients that they might have allergy type, allergic like symptoms but they saw the allergist and their, t their testing was negative and they just think, well, I don't know what's wrong with me. And they just kind of go on and live with it. Right. But they, yeah. they might have MCAS or they have irritable bowel syndrome as their primary symptom. Right. So they have a lot of gut issues, but they don't have allergic symptoms and they don't have anything else. Right. And, but at the end of the day, what they probably have or might have, right. Is mast cell activation syndrome. So I think there are a lot of people who are really walking around undiagnosed. We, it's becoming more obvious to those of us who are treating it of the severe cases, you know, but, but, 
I would argue that there are probably lots of these undiagnosed, mildly symptomatic or moderately symptomatic, but not severely, who are being treated for a variety of different multisystemic conditions that um, are not necessarily responding, and um, and they you know may have this as the root. Mm. All right, um, I might come back to that genetic discussion later when we talk about testing um but you mentioned there the ibs and that was one of the main areas i wanted to to discuss um because there's been some recent literature and i'm sure or suspect you've seen it in practice um from my understanding that many uh mcas patients have gastrointestinal symptoms and um or, or on the flip side it could be that many of ibs patients could have an underlying mcas and practitioners could be Treating the um, IBS, whether it's SIBO or using probiotics, et cetera, which um, can have some uh, significant benefits, but perhaps not getting full resolution. So, yeah, that's a bit of sort of a frame up. Um, describe how you approach either a gut patient or MCAS patient. What's the connection between MCAS and the gut? Well, I think it's important to understand, kind of going back to what I was talking about, um, just at a basic level, what mast cells do and why they are yeah. where they are, right? They're, mast cells are um, located in the body at the interfaces with the environment. So if, mm. um, so if we think about where those interfaces are, um, the skin, right, is in direct connection with the environment, and there, there are a lot of mast cells in the skin. The same with the respiratory tract, and the same with the GI tract, um, and and the GU tract as well. And and so, if we think about it that way, so we know that mast cells are are in abundance all throughout the GI tract. And I think from an evolutionary perspective or a However you want to look at it, I, you know, the reason they're, they're there is because, you know, there's a high risk um, of eating, let's say, a parasite or ingesting something, sure. right, that's, that's poisonous. And so they're there, right? They're, they're going to, to protect you. And I, and I would argue that paras- parasites probably are probably evolutionarily the biggest um, driver of, of why, you know, mast cells are where they are, I think. I mean, that's all, you know, hypothetical. But um, so mast cells are there in abundance. So anything that affects the GI tract will will, uh, and can affect the mast cells. Whether that turns into MCAS is a different story. So if somebody does get a parasite, you know, they travel to a part of the world that they're, you know, and they they get uh, some kind of a bug, um, the mast cells will get activated um, and that will cause tremendous inflammation and pain and diarrhea and whatever other symptom they have. And, you know, the, you treat the problem and the mast cells, again, normal mast cells will reset. It's, it's really when the mast cells are abnormal. And so in the population of people who have abnormally reactive mast cells in the gut, um, anything that disturbs them is going to set off and cause a flare. So, um, so I think that um, infections, things like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, right, or or even um, if you look at if a fungal overgrowth or uh, dysbiosis in the large intestine, all those things um, can can drive mast cell activation and can cause it to sort of go into this vicious cycle. Now, um, on the flip side, um, mast cell, once these mast cells are activated, 
it might not even matter if there are parasites or bacteria or anything else there. They are reacting and they can just continue to react and cause significant symptomatology despite your best efforts at trying to achieve better balance in the gut or, or gut healing or treating the leaky gut, right? So that's the challenge, right? So it's kind of, it kind of goes both ways. Mm. So, so yeah. sorry, kick on. <laughs> no, no. So, you know, just to build on that, um, you know, we talk a lot about in the integrative world, we talk about leaky gut. Um, and I, and I think this is, this is very important and I would, it is an important factor. Um, and I would argue that whatever causes leaky gut causes mass cell activation syndrome, mass cell activation syndrome causes worsening of leaky gut. And, um, but if you just focus on healing the gut, which a lot of, I, you know, I know a lot of my colleagues are, are very, you know, gut centric in, in their practice. And, and I think that I, I agree with a lot of that, but you can do all the work in the world at trying to heal the leaky gut. But if the mast cells are not addressed, um, it's, you know, the efforts are futile. So um, I think that once you start thinking about how the, how the mast cells fit into this, into their, into this issue, then it, you're just going to, I think, you know, well, not more than think, I know in my practice, patients get better, you know, um, either, either faster or, or more sustained, you know, response. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I suppose the old adage, um, start with the gut, but if in terms of treatment, so do you often treat the gut and be mindful of, um, MCAS or do you often treat, um, them concurrently or, um, it's probably up to case, uh, case by case basis, but I'm just curious on obviously some of the parasites or dysbiosis or SIBO or whatever can drive the mast cell activation, but as you mentioned, it's a, it's a vicious cycle. So how do you sort of tease apart when to treat the gut and when to concurrently treat or when to treat MCAS alone? So the challenge with, with many MCAS patients is that they're, they tend to be um, exquisitely sensitive mm. to either medications, herbs, vitamins, and more than more often than not, it's not the active component that they have the problem with, but it's with fillers or excipients yeah. that are mixed in there. So the challenge is if you if you throw too many things at them, you know, you want them to be on a probiotic, you want them to be on uh, glutamine, you want them to be on, you know, the things that you want them, and then you want them also to change their diet. And at the same time, you want to work on their mast cells, it gets too complicated. And when mm -hmm. they react, it's just hard to know what they're reacting to. How do you know what's really helping and what's hurting? So I'm very systematic about my approach. If I suspect MCAS and ideally I've tested for it, and we can talk about that as well, what that looks like, and I'm, I'm confident in that diagnosis, I am going to want to really address that first. Now that's not going to help the whole issue, right? If there's something else that's that's also continuing to drive that, that activation, right? You, you got, you have to deal with that as well. So if that's a parasite or SIBO, I'm going to treat that. But I find that when you dampen down the, the activation syndrome, then um, you either have more success at trying to, to now add the things that need to be added 
to treat those underlying issues. Or really interestingly, sometimes I wind up not having to be that aggressive with treating those underlying issues because what becomes clearer is that the MCAS was really the root cause. So they had SIBO, they had all those things when you tested them, but the driver was the was the was the MCAS. Um, And so I think, yeah, it has to be definitely very individualized. Um, But I I really encourage uh, practitioners to really, um, when treating the gut, to really understand all the different pieces and then to really prioritize what what needs to be done first. So if I have a really reactive patient and I start with, I don't know, I'm just going to give an example because a lot of my colleagues maybe use glutamine or... um, uh, maybe um, bovine immunoglobulins, or you know, there there's so many things, right? We use for for leaky gut. Um, if I if I have a patient who is telling me that they're very reactive, not just with their gut, but they're very sensitive, and I'm getting that history to me that really is pointing to MCAS, I'm unlikely to start with any of those supplements. I'm going to start with I might start with uh, an antihistamine. Or I might start with, and it could be a natural antihistamine, or it could be a a, a pharmaceutical antihistamine. But I'm gonna I'm gonna try to figure out how to dampen down that response and, and block one of the mediators that mast cells make um, in attempts to then kind of figure out, okay, what you know what helps and what doesn't help, and then I build on that. Mm. That's a great strategy. Um, you mentioned histamine, and I want to use that as a segue to compare and contrast histamine intolerance and MCAS. So histamine intolerance is a, another condition that's possibly quite prevalent and um, can drive gut symptoms and present maybe as IBS-like state. Uh, mast cells obviously release histamine, but um, it's probably a bit of a, a misnomer just to think of them as only releasing histamine. They release up to 200 mediators, I think. Um so is it a spectrum or are they two separate conditions? How do you uh, compare and contrast histamine intolerance to MCAS? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I actually was just interviewed for um, uh, an article in a, in a online um, newspaper, um, really, uh, you know, looking at this exact question, you know, what is histamine intolerance and is it MCAS and, and is it on the spectrum? Yeah. And you know, the way I think about it is that histamine is really one mediator that mast cells can make. And um, so so for, for some patients, the mast cells predominant um, mediator that it's making is histamine, and, and they can then have a lot of the secondary effects from excess histamine and histamine intolerance. So there are MCAS patients who have histamine intolerance, but histamine intolerance can also exist outside of MCAS. And, mm. and that's because um, histamine is an interesting chemical. It's not only made by mast cells. So there are other cells that make it. We, ha- we eat food that can be, um, that, that either it has high histamine or that its chemicals can be converted into histamine. Um, we, um, have, we have ways in our body to, to metabolize histamine. In the gut, we have an enzyme called diamine oxidase. And diamine oxidase is, is the primary way that your, your um, gut breaks down histamine. Um, if you don't have enough um, diamine oxidase, 
then you're going to have difficulty breaking down histamine. And that could lead to increased levels of histamine and histamine intolerance. Histamine is also metabolized through um, this pathway called methylation. Mm. And so you need certain enzymes, um, you need methyl groups to, to process histamine. And so if you are missing uh, those uh, methylation groups, methyl groups, and or you have defects in these enzyme uh, enzymes and these methylation pathways. Also, you can have you can wind up with excess histamine, and histamine is you know at the level of the tissues, it's inflammatory. If you have a lot of histamine um, in the gut, you know I, I think about it. Think about what histamine does in the skin. You get hives, itching. If you have a lot of histamine in your nose from an allergic reaction, mast cells released histamine, right? You're going to get congested. Everything's swollen and, and um, you know, produces all this, all this um, excess fluid. Um, imagine that's happening in the gut in the lining of the gut, right? So things get swollen, things get painful, mm. things get, right? And so if, if you have all that histamine that can't be broken down and you're eating things that have histamine um, and, and maybe you have mast cells that are contributing more histamine, right? It becomes this really vicious cycle. So histamine intolerance, again, can exist without, outside of, you know, apart from mast cell activation syndrome, but it certainly can be related. Um, and, you know, my approach with, with patients with histamine intolerance is we try to, um, we try to rule out MCAS first, right. and then we work on, if it's pure, is a pure histamine issue, right? Then we work on whether it's the diet, whether it's the, um, the supplement diamine oxidase, whether it's methylation, um, supporting the methylation pathways, um, you know, or, or, and, or, and treating, um, things that can contribute to more histamine. So like dis dysbiosis in the gut contributes to more histamine release. Some of those bacteria contribute more histamine. Um, and so it's, it's about looking all those things at, at all those things. And, and often if it really is histamine intolerance, it can be, um, I don't want to say it's more, it's more easily treated, but it's um, more confined. It's not multi-systemic, mm. whereas MCAS is multi-systemic and affects other organs and other systems, which is a little, so it's a little more complex. Yeah, it's a good, good way of looking at it. But I don't want to. Uh, I want to make a point, though. I'm not saying that people with histamine intolerance are not miserable, right? They can be, they can be in pain. They can feel horrible, yeah. right? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that uh, that once that's a determined, it, it there are more concrete ways to treat it. Yeah, yeah. Well, now that you described that graphic um, <laughs> image in the gut, mm -hmm. if it's akin to uh, a skin um, reaction, then yeah, I can I can understand how these patients must be feeling miserable. Um, so as a treatment. As a treatment for either histamine intolerance, and I've seen some um, MCAS specialists recommend dietary recommendations or restrictions. So there's a low histamine diet. Um, I think there's research showing that a low FODMAP diet, interestingly, I suspect because it's altering the microbiome, a low FODMAP diet can re uh, reduce serum histamine levels. So these are some of the tools from a dietary perspective. What? How do you organize your thoughts here around um, prescribing diets for either obviously histamine intolerance, but more importantly, MCAS. Uh, yeah. And, and I think we should make a point um, even before we, we dive into that, that 
many patients with histamine intolerance will not have elevated serum histamine levels. So the histamine, excess histamine is in the gut, um, but it's not in the bloodstream. Okay. I'm more likely to find a histamine, plasma histamine positive in MCAS. Uh, of course, where there's yeah. mast cells releasing histamine in various tissues, and that's being released into the into the bloodstream. I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think I mean, anyone's actually looked at that. I don't. I don't think we have data, specific data. Yeah. That's just my clinical mm-hmm. impression. Um. So yeah. So then, in terms of diet, um, you know, I, I'm a really real believer in personalized dietary recommendations. I'm really concerned about giving patients sort of point mm. blank, you know, things that they need to do or not do. It stresses them out. Low histamine diets are actually quite difficult for a lot of patients. You yeah. know, it's not easy. Um, FODMAP may be a little bit easier. Um, you know, I think what it comes down to is really identifying with the patients, whether they notice certain foods um, or, or certain types of foods that um, they may react to. Sometimes it's not not that easy to determine, but I like patients keeping food diaries so that we can, you know, maybe maybe see if we can can come to some kind of conclusion. It's easier if we can eliminate things we know are harmful for them, and then kind of generalize from there, right? So I have patients, you know, it, it's very clear to them that if they eat meat that is uh, like a leftover. They've eaten it. They've made it one night, and then they are eating it the next night and the next night. Um, that that's going to be higher in histamine, and they're more likely to react. But if they ate the meat the first night, it's not the meat that's mm-hmm. the problem. It's yeah. how old the you know the aging of it. So I think it's that's why I think it's important that I, I don't love to tell people don't eat this or that in in this realm because it may be an issue, it may not be an issue. Um, I think that in general. Um, you know, I, I like patients to be, you know, and this is, I don't think there's data on this, but this is just how, what works for my patients. I think gluten is an issue for many patients. And so we start, it's, you know, it's gluten-free. Often it has to be dairy-free. If there's an MCAS issue, I need to eliminate things that I know are more inflammatory. And then we start to work on, okay, should they be eating a higher, like a keto type diet, a ketogenic diet? where they're in general, they're eating fresher meat and vegetables that are more easily digested and cooked and are lower in histamine. Um, and that does work for a lot of people or, or do they need, or do they need to just keep their diet the same and just lower, you know, lower, um, their FODMAP maps. So I, I, you know, I'm not answering your question because I use a lot of different diets and techniques to, to get my patients better. Yep. Uh, well, you've actually answered a question that <laughs> sprung to my mind that I was going to ask you later on, um, which is sort of a off from the introduction and maybe a, bit a philosophical or a bit of a tangent. But I was curious why you you titled your um, clinic the AIM Center for Personalized Medicine <laughs> as the approach because it used to be integrative medicine. Um, but I think you've sort of answered my question now that um, yeah. Well, if you want to add to that, like obviously personalization, I think sometimes in the functional medicine sphere is synonymous with like doing a, a lot of testing and getting sort of, you know, deep dives and biohacking your way into through patients. But personalization is also more of a, uh, just that like understand the patient and their preferences and the nuances as well. So I don't know if you just wanted to 
clarify, yeah. add, or, or comment on why yeah. you, you made that subtle shift? Yeah, no, I, I, I love that you picked up on that. Um, yeah, because the, the truth is that for me, it's not about um, the biohacking piece or anything. It's really about, you know, the, the work that I do with each individual patient and how I think about their case and how I look at all the pieces and how they fit together or don't fit together. And to me, there's no other way to, to describe it than personalization. Um, you know, one of the things, and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, about, Frank, about this about this issue with integrative medicine. We took integrative medicine out of the out of the name because um, of some feedback that I was getting from some colleagues and some patients about how um, what the perception is of integrative practitioners, um, and um, and so we, um, you know, we have. Uh, colleagues in the, in the area that they know me, they know the work that I do, but then the patients go and they say, oh, oh yeah, that integrative, you know, physician. Um, and so I'm not, I'm doing integrative work, but I'm doing so much more now that integrative doesn't even describe what I do. Right. And because we're publishing and we're doing all these things, we, we felt that we needed to, to change the focus a little bit, but, um, it's a sticky, it's a sticky point actually. And, uh, and I, and I feel bad that we're in this position still for so many years, integrative medicine has been around. I, I can't believe that we're still in the position where we can't, you know, um, speak proudly of the work that we do, you know? Mm, compared to the in the general pop you know general traditional medical world yeah yeah well yeah thanks for that insight um so back to mcas there's a couple other areas so yeah the gut obviously uh many patients have gut issues and it could be mcas so i wanted to cover some other areas where maybe there's some common uh symptoms and conditions which we may not suspect mcas could be a driver uh, namely neurological systems I noticed in some of the research headaches and migraines and even neuropsychiatric conditions anxiety stress etc um, are common um, doesn't necessarily mean it's caused by but common in MCAS patients so again um, where do these symptoms sort of register on you when you're looking at patients and and the role of potentially MCAS yeah you know as I mentioned before, since the mast cells are in all the areas where there's an interface between the environment and the body, um, it turns out that the nervous system um, also has an abundance of mast cells. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting because um, we are taught that the nervous system is protected. You know, there's a blood-brain barrier and mm. so it's different than the other organs in the in the body. But in fact, that blood-brain barrier is actually quite leaky, and um, and so mast cells are are uh, positioned in these locations in the brain and the nervous system, right, for protection. And so, if mast cells, um, if we know, and we know this, that mast cells uh, are essentially um, sitting around, are they around all the neurons in the brain? They they talk to astrocytes and. Um, other the other immune cells of, of the brain. Um, so if you imagine that they're there and they're um, going to react to things in the environment, and it could be it could be um, you know you ate chocolate and you know you're sensitive to chocolate, and the mast cells didn't like the chocolate, and then next thing you know it causes uh, an inflammatory reaction, and then boom you've got you know you've got a migraine or you've got a headache. So I think that um, if we think about all these different systems in the body and you then you imagine where the mast cells are it's hard to not see that that mcas has to be a 
big piece of, of, of treating these patients. So there are all these new headache medications out now and um, migraine medications. And interestingly, if you look at some of the mechanism of action, they, they probably um, stabilize mast cells on some level. There's, there are some mechanisms that could be explained through how they work through the mast cell, but that's not how they're being studied. So I just think it's interesting. Um, so I, I think for, for practitioners who are seeing patients um, with uh, neurologic symptoms, and it could be headache, migraine, it could be neuropathies, it could be, um, uh, it could be neuropsychiatric conditions, um, all those things, um, MCAS should come to mind. MCAS should be looked at and MCAS should be treated because um, the treatment can can make a huge difference. I have a patient who had migraines for you know 30 years until she was treated for her MCAS and now never gets migraines anymore, right? So that's that's huge, wow. life-changing. Yeah. Absolutely. Excellent. So yeah, again, just be on the lookout and again, um, maybe we'll get to the testing if they got it's probably more if they've got migraines plus the, the multi-system or multi-symptom illness, and then you can do all the, the workup and testing. Um, yeah, I think, Nathan, yeah, I think um, let me just um, yeah, sure. follow up yeah, on comment, that. Yeah, comment, please. Yeah. Um, we, so the thing is that um, I think you're right. You, you said, well, if they have migraine plus something else, right? So the truth is that, yeah, it would. it's very unusual to see MCAS only present in one system group right? So if they mm. only have migraine, they have no gut issues, they have no skin issues, they have no allergies, they have, um, they have no inflammation, they don't have interstitial cystitis, they don't have anxiety, they don't like, you've done a full systems review, all right? And they really only have migraine, it's unlikely to be MCAS. Um, I would argue that most patients who present with migraine also have other systems involved, in which case I would strongly recommend, you know, looking at MCAS, but, but, you know, I, because that's my area of expertise, I'm always stepping back and making sure that I'm not lumping all the patients in, into that grouping, right? I want to make sure that I'm not labeling everyone as MCAS, but, but when you start, see enough of these patients, you see that it's rare that patients really have just one area involved. Yeah. You know, anyway. excellent. Um, all right. So, MCAS and COVID, um, I noticed, yeah, the different researchers with their levels of interest um, have rightly so made connections between, I think, the pathology, particularly like the maybe the um, severe COVID or now this view of these quote-unquote long haulers or those of the um, COVID lingers, um, that their area of interest, whether it's MCAS, um, also things like nitric oxide, et cetera, uh, a potentially a contributor. So it's interesting that a lot of the functional medicine, I suppose, drivers are, are showing up and potentially showing up in this condition. Um, so what I wanted to, yeah, ask you about is the role of COVID. Then we might look at COVID more broadly. So uh, you mentioned um, Dr. Afrin did publish a, a, a sort of an editorial on MCAS, and I think um, what's his name, Dr. Theo Theohadrides, yep. is also yep. quite... Um, intrigued by COVID and mast cells. So, yeah, can you describe the the thoughts around MCAS or mast cells in COVID? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm really intrigued by this, and I have um, been treating more and more patients um, who've either had acute treating them in the acute phase, or I'm treating them um, post 
post-COVID, either short-term post-COVID, like you within the you know few weeks of the infection, but but now more and more seeing these uh, long haulers um, months and months after, and um, with persistent symptoms. So, wh- um, what we what we're proposing is that um, that mast cell activation syndrome is a uh, a result can be a result of COVID in 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 some patients, and MCAS can be the driver of the long haul syndrome that we're that we're seeing. Um, you know, again, going back to what I said earlier, mast cells are designed to react to infections, viruses included, and COVID mm-hmm. is a virus. Um, now, there are lots of other parts of the immune system that get activated with COVID and other infections. So I don't want to make it sound like it's the only thing, but it's a big piece. Um, and it's a, it's an early piece of the reaction to, to COVID. And so, so the question is, what is that activation of mast cells in, in, in dealing with COVID do, right? So mast cells release mediators, they release chemicals. Um, and, and some of those chemicals can lead to what they're calling a cytokine storm. Now there's another um, cell in the body or white blood cell called the macrophage. And the macrophage can also get activated by COVID. And the macrophage releases chemicals and can cause a cytokine storm as well. So I mm. want to be careful and say that I, it's a hard, I'd be hard pressed to say that the whole thing is, is MCAS. <laughs> but because again, there are other cells in the body. Um, but in patients who had MCAS, didn't know they had it, weren't diagnosed, but they might have had mild symptoms present. Um, when they get COVID, if they've not been treated for their MCAS, what we're seeing is that many of them, um, are, you know, wind up in this long, long hauler group. They don't, they don't get better. And, and the reasoning is because what we believe and what we're seeing is that they had untreated MCAS and their, and their mast cells got so inappropriately activated after this infection that they can't stop. And so wherever the mast cells are activated is where their persistent symptoms are. So if their activation is in the, in the lungs and the bronchial tubes, they are having continued persistent shortness of breath, um, or they're having fatigue, um, or they're having, um, you know, some of these other, um, nonspecific symptoms. Sometimes it's GI related, in every single patient that I've seen, now I've certainly not seen hundreds of thousands of patients, right? So we're talking mm. about handfuls of patients um, that I'm seeing now from all over the country um, and, and and all over the world, but more, more in this country right now. Um, what we're seeing is that there's a history in almost all these patients of prior uh, symptoms that were suggestive of MCAS. I can't prove it. But they almost all have had some some features that are consistent. And then COVID is the straw that broke the camel's back. And then they can't, they can't come back out of it. And treatment, targeted treatment against um, for mast cell activation syndrome does seem to help patients um, really, really um, dramatically in many cases. Not all, because there are other theories um, as to why um, mm. some patients are still sick. And one is that there may just be persistent viruses there. So the viruses didn't go away. The virus didn't go away. The virus keeps um, activating the mast cell. And, and so they're in this vicious cycle. So you can try to dampen down the mast cells, but 
if the virus is still there, you you need to manage it, and and that's still controversial. No one mm. um, has has proven that in 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 human patients, but there's some animal models that suggest that, or or even in the in like petri dishes, there's a suggestive that that the viruses can can persist. Um, so so some patients need a, a dual approach. You got to deal with the infection, and you have to deal with um, MCAS. But I would say that. Um, I feel very strongly about patients um, getting identified early, dealing with the mast cells early, even if they didn't know they had MCAS. I mean, we're seeing treatment of COVID involving some of the things, very things that we use for MCAS. So there's a study on famotidine, maybe having some antiviral properties against COVID. And I would argue that it's probably doing more than antiviral effects. It's probably affecting the mast cell and blocking histamine. And that's probably helping COVID patients. And there, now there's a look at other types of antihistamines. So there's there's more and more of the sort of, you know, um, circumstantial evidence that that suggests that um, MCAS is a, is a driver of COVID. It potentially could drive post-COVID syndrome. And, um, and the better we, you know, we can um, identify that and, and actually really publish on that, I think, I think better people are going to be um, you know, all over the world, right? We, we need to yeah. get a handle on this. We have the vaccine now. We have, you know, although a lot of people are not going to be able to get it in the, um, in the immediate future, um, there are lots of promises. But I think that understanding how MCAS might fit into this, I think, could be yeah. a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. But no one's no one's really taking this seriously, unfortunately. Not not yes. in the government mm. level. Um, and this may be a similar answer to this question around the the macrophages, um, whether there's much investigation there. I'm just curious with this macrophage activation, uh, is that to do with the the M1 to M2 phenotype, where the M1's more pro-inflammatory and M2's um, more pro-resolving? And if so have you or do you see a role for things like um, specialized pro-resolving mediators to play a role in like um, long haulers? Well, that's an excellent question. And the macrophage activation syndrome, I think, is is different than this M1 to M2 that you're talking about. Uh, okay. But but either way, um, I would say Macrophage activation is not causing long hauler syndrome. Macrophage activation right. would be causing oh, sorry, the, real acute people, yeah, people that shoot. are really You're acute, right. yeah, in the ICU type thing. Uh, okay, but, yep. But you bring up an, an interesting question about the um, the SPM, those those pro resolving mediators, um, and I and I think that they do play a role in in this. You know. We don't have the studies. It would be great if someone would fund that type of study. Um, I can't imagine that it would be harmful unless a patient has sensitivity to any of the ingredients, of course. Mm. Um, but I think that those types of, um, of uh, compounds might be very interesting to, to look at and helpful. I, I do use them quite a bit in my practice, but I can't say that they're the thing that's going to that change the course of the illness, but it's, uh, it's part of protocol you know yeah great okay um let's move on to testing which um and diagnosis which is a, a tricky area and maybe some some treatment updates so um yeah mcas obviously it's it's still a relatively new phenomenon um and again because there's so many mediators released by the mast cells and they're so fleeting and um short short-lived they're hard to capture 
Um, and again, like it's multi-system, so there's a lot of non-specific symptoms. So um, perhaps, yeah, you, you mentioned you've got an update potentially on better diagnosis. So can you just maybe expand on the, the landscape of why it's so challenging and hard to define and, and then we'll look at some maybe biomarkers or, or, or treatment testing options? Yeah. Well, I can't say that we really have a many, many better options. Like we don't have, yeah. yeah, it's not great. Testing is not great. Let me, let me, let me put it out there. Um, testing is really challenging for so many reasons. Now in my, in my practice though, one of the things that we've done, which has really um, been, been very helpful um, in doing the testing is we've, we've purchased a refrigerated centrifuge. We've, we've done some things to, um, and we, and we found a lab actually that can do a lot of this testing. And so this, the testing from our office in New York has become uh, more seamless than ever. Um, but, but just for practitioners out there um, in, in Australia, all over the world, I, I think it's still very, very challenging because these mediators um, for the most part are very thermolabile. They're heat right. sensitive. So they have to be kept cold, which is why we have this refrigerated centrifuge Um and everything has to be processed a certain way. And so, you know, I have, we have staff that have been trained to do this. We have a lab that's been trained. Everyone is on board. And when we have everyone on board, even with that, sometimes we don't get the answers that we're looking for. So it is challenging. I, I think what I usually recommend is, is that at the very least, there are three tests that can easily be done in, in most blood work. And, I, and I'm pretty sure this is available in Australia. It's a plasma histamine. You can also run a whole blood histamine, um, and and we've started doing that, and and maybe that's helpful when the plasma histamine isn't. Um, then a, a chromogranin A and a tryptase. The majority of patients will have normal tryptase levels, so you do not need tryptase to diagnose MCAS. Uh, according to well, that's according to our criteria. We call it the consensus two criteria. You do not need tryptase. Um, and sometimes, you know, I'll see a little bit of an elevated histamine, a little elevated chromogranin A, and then I'm done, right? They have a clinical right. history. I have two markers. I feel good about that, right? Um, if I don't have that, that's when you have to go on and think about um, doing the 24-hour urine collections and the random urine collections to to look for the um, the metabolites of the mediators that, that mast cells um, release. Um, I would say that the other um, way to, to help the diagnosis is using biopsy samples. So, you know, a lot of the patients, at least the ones that come in to see me, you know, because they have all these gut issues, they've been scoped from above, from below. They have, they have um, you know, samples that are available. And um, at least here in the States, we can request uh, the tissue, um, and they have to keep tissue for a certain amount of years um, in the lab. So they have the tissue, they, they'll send it to us. We have a pathologist that we work with who then takes those samples and then stains it. There's a specific stain that stains for mast cells, and it's called the CD117. And on a, on a GI sample, if you see more than 20 mast cells per high power field, um, that's suggestive of mast cell activation syndrome. So there's a, there's a condition called mastocytosis. Mastocytosis is 
basically a cancer of the mast cell. So there's a lot, there are a lot of mast cells. In mast cell activation syndrome, the number is typically normal, normal number of mast cells, but they're more reactive. But it turns out that in certain tissue, particularly the GI tract, MCAS can cause a slight increase in the number of mast cells in those, in, in, particularly in those areas that there's, the, there's a problem. And that's, um, that can be used also to help with a diagnosis. Interesting. That's great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I believe those three tests are readily available in Australia, um, and that's fascinating about the, the biopsy. Um, so finally, therapy. Um, obviously, I think there's some good pharmaceutical and over-the-counter uh, antihistamines, um, but also there can be some nutritional and herbal supplements, um, provided that they're low in excipients, as you mentioned, that can um, play a significant role in MCAS. So could you maybe just outline some of your um, preferred or favourite um, both pharmaceutical and yeah. um, nutritional therapies? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so, you know, I have I have a handful of things that I use first line, you know, quite readily. And um, I think that um, I think it's important to note that um, this is where the personalized comes in as well. Um, yeah. I might, I really think that most patients typically do well with a H1 or an, and an H2 blocker. So an antihistamine, typical antihistamine, and then a antihistamine H2 blocker that, that blocks the, the histamine receptors in the gut, right? That combination is typically a great way to start. You start with one first, then you have the next. Um, but not everyone needs pharmaceuticals. So, so, so I just, I'm sort of, I'm going to name these things, but I want to be clear that it's, I'm not naming them in order of the things that I necessarily mm-hmm. do. It really depends on the patient, but, but yeah, the antihistamines, there are a number of them that are um, over the counter here in the States. Um, some of them are prescription elsewhere. There are additional types of antihistamines in other countries that I've heard as well. Um, but, you know, the main thing with antihistamines is that they block the H1 receptors. And by blocking the H1 receptors, you you block the effects of histamine. Um, and then you might even actually stabilize mast cells as a, as a, like sort of a negative feedback loop. Um, so I think that can be very helpful here. Uh, we have sotirazine, uh, loratadine, um, fexofenadine. We have, you know, we have a number of them. There are a few that are prescription. Um, so I, I do think that that's a nice way to start, especially if you don't know if they have MCAS specifically, you haven't made the diagnosis, but, um, I think there's very low risk to try these things. You know, I prefer, for, I prefer to have a diagnosis if I'm going to use the heavier, you know, heavier, heavier guns, you know, to treat, but the the simple things like the antihistamines you can do, even when you're trying to, you're just considering the diagnosis. Um, then the H2 blockers here, we have, um, famotidine. We used to have, um, uh, Zantac, I'm, I'm, drank, I'm blanking on the ranitidine is the generic, um, which was taken off the market here. Uh, but those are, those also combined with H1. So you block H1 receptors, you block H2 receptors, you do that together. That seems to have a better effect, but not every, not all patients tolerate those. Um, and, but those would be first line. And from a herbal perspective or vitamin perspective, my first line could be vitamin C, could be quercetin. 
Definitely vitamin D. And, and I think this is very, very important. And we see this, we're seeing this with COVID, but we're mm. seeing this in, in so many conditions that low vitamin D has an impact on, on the immune system. And, um, and there is some research to suggest that vitamin D deficiency uh, can predispose patients to MCAS or make it worse. So vitamin D is probably number one. Um, so D, C, quercetin as a, as a base um, you know, sometimes I might use a, a, a probiotic that has some antihistamine properties. If I think it's not can tolerate it at the early stages, that might that might come later. Um, there are certainly other um, herbs and and combinations of herbs that that can be helpful. Again, depends from a from a pharmaceutical perspective. After H one H two, there are things like uh, ketotifen, which is a partial antihistamine and partial mast cell stabilizer. Um, so in, in the States, we have to compound it. Um, okay. and we, we have uh, chromalin sodium, which sure, has yep. mast cell stabilizing properties and, and can be helpful for some patients who have gut issues. Anecdotally, um, we didn't talk much about neuropsychiatric stuff, but anecdotally, I have found that chromalin orally, which See, which is not supposed to be absorbed into the system. It's really not absorbed. Um, has helped a subset of my patients with neuropsychiatric illness. So, patient, I have a patient with um, with a PANDAS type, you know, right. situation, autoimmune encephalitis, and chromalin has been the game changer for him. Wow. Um, so I just I I put that out there anecdotally because you just I would never have thought that. <laughs> And that's, and that's really what's helping. So those are some things, you know, easy things. And then, you know, we have um, drugs that block leukotrienes, um, which, is a, which is one of the mediators that mast cells make. Here we have Montelukast, um, and there are a few others um, in that class um, with Montelukast that, that can be used as well. Um, interestingly, benzodiazepines, which are um, basically the tranquilizers that people think of, like Xanax, mm. Valium. I don't know what they're called in Australia, but um, do they have the same names there or do you have different yeah, names for yeah, them? Yeah, essentially the same names. Yeah. As yeah. Far okay. as I know. Um, so, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of, of, of putting patients on, on addictive drugs. However, um, that can be a, be a real game changer for, for some patients because um, there are, um, there are receptors on the mast cell um, for those drugs. And so they bind and they stabilize. So, you know, sometimes we need to add that on board, um, especially when patients are super reactive. Um, it's a nice way to, to kind of calm things down. And, and they often respond to very low doses. So there's, you know, that's, a, that's just like a little sp- uh, splattering mm-hmm. of things that I use. There's, there's certainly more. Um, but I think it's good to know that there's, there, there's a lot of hope in treatment, there's a lot. There are a lot of options, you know. Unlike some other conditions where we might only have, you know, one or two things we can use, we we have a lot of things, and the combinations of things can make a difference for the patient. And of course, when you're you're treating, you're you're focusing and, and targeting the mast cell. You're also always thinking about what else you're missing and what else is potentially a trigger for the mast cell. You have to eliminate the triggers. Yeah, absolutely. Or you're not going to get them better. Yeah. 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 All right. Might be remiss not to (laughs) quickly touch upon the triggers. We'll wind up in a second. Um, But I did have a few questions. I think like 
um, again, like the mast cells have receptors or um, uh, influence or triggered by stress hormones, sex hormones, toxins. It's, it's quite a wide array. It seems to be in that functional medicine space of those diverse triggers. But, yeah, can you just quickly perhaps list off some of the, the key triggers? Yeah, I think you covered it. No, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Um, because whatever there are receptors for, then the thing that can bind there is the, is the trigger. But um, but yeah, we talked about the environment in general, right? So again, mast cells are reactive to the environment. So um, a trigger could be an allergen, right? If it's somebody who actually has allergy um, and they have, you know, IgE-mediated um response and, and mast cell activation from that, um, you've got to, you've got to eliminate the triggers. If they have a dust mite allergy and, um, they, you're sleeping on an old pillow where there are a lot of dust mites, uh, that's obviously going to make them worse. Right. So, so some things are, are kind of obvious. Um, some yeah. things aren't, you know, triggers could be, um, you know, we, we are seeing an increase in, um, illness from like organophosphate, um, pesticides, um, things that are like sprayed in the air, insecticides, mm. um, uh, things like mold for sure. Mold should always be my like number one thing to talk about, right? And there's mold in the air outside. Like aspergillus is just floating all over the place here in New York in October. It's just everywhere there's mold. Right. Um, but, uh, but there's mold water damaged buildings. They acquire mold and, and, black mold and all types of other molds, which release mycotoxins, which are very much a, a trigger um, for mast cell activation, as well as other issues with the immune system. Um, infections, of course. Um, so all kinds of toxins, I mentioned mycotoxins, but again, all kinds of toxins can, can fit the bill, um, benzenes and um, others and, and um, infections, all infections, parasites, bacteria, viruses, Etc. So, I probably missed a bunch, but but that you know yeah. that's um, um, probably that's- just one is the um, sex hormones, female hormones, <laughs> estrogen. Um, we mentioned it in your previous podcast, but I've had some queries around about that. Um, just briefly, yeah. the role of sex hormones in, in MCAS are symptoms maybe worse, like cyclic or uh, around menstruation or um, ovulation, etc. Yeah, exactly. Um, All the above. So, you know, mast cells have receptors for estrogen, for progesterone and testosterone. Um, We don't know fully what the receptor for testosterone does, to be honest with you. I have my theories, but we we definitely know that when estrogen binds the mast cell, it does send send a signal. Now, sometimes, depending on the patient, the signal mast cells may do better when there's more stable levels of estrogen. Uh, and it could be that the mast cells are responding to fluctuations in estrogen. So there's estrogen bound on the receptor, then there isn't. And so certainly during t- times of a woman's menstrual cycle, when the estrogen levels are going up and then they're going down right before menstruation, that that is a big trigger, right? So that's the period of PMS. It's a period when um, but the mast cells may read the, even the, the fluctuations in the hormone as, a, as abnormal. And so, yeah, we, I have many very symptomatic patients who, whose mast cell activation syndrome gets much worse before the period. I have others, though, interestingly, that they react more if their levels are 
So during menstruation, it's worse, um, let's say, right. um, and they may have more pain and, and, uh, and symptoms, um, that are quite severe that they can, you know, vomiting and, and they can't even leave the house. And I have others who, who do worse, um, with birth control pills and others that do better with birth control pills. So for sure, hormones, um, play a, play a, a huge role in not only in the activation of mast cells, but I think it's also important to note that, um, that mast cells may play a role in hormonal imbalances themselves. So there's like a, so it's a two way street. Mm. So hormones are affecting the mast cells. Mast cells are affecting the metabolic state uh, of the cells and the, and the patients. And so some of this data comes from rat studies and mice studies, but we know that there's a link between um, metabolic syndrome and obesity and mast cells. Um, and, I, you know, I would argue that um, in polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a hormone imbalance that can cause insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, that uh, mast cells are very much involved uh, on a two-way street. So that in, uh, that condition it can make MCAS worse, but having MCAS may make PCOS worse. And I would say that the majority of my PCOS patients, from what I can see, have MCAS. I haven't found any yet that don't have some form of MCAS, which I think is really interesting. And that's an area that I'm really interested in more recently and looking at wow. the numbers and, and seeing. So so it's a two-way street. So the, the better the mast cells are stabilized and controlled um, and less activated, the, the better the metabolic pieces. And so um, I'll even tie it into weight gain. Um, I have patients, many patient, MCAS patients struggle with weight fluctuations they sometimes can lose weight very quickly or they gain weight very quickly. Um, and it does seem that MCAS is playing a role, um, whether it's in relation to insulin or leptin or some of these other hormones, there definitely is a, um, a cross uh, communication that's going on um, that's, that's, that's causing that. But that's the areas that, that needs to be um, you know, investigated. Mm. Mast cells also, yeah, they do have receptors for... Um, um, for the adrenal hormones as well, and um, um, and and can also affect uh, energy and fatigue and things like that through those mechanisms. So that's just like an overview. Wow. Well, we've covered nearly every system. I think gut and immunity <laughs> and brain hormones, um, testing and and diagnosis has been brilliant. Um, maybe as a final question, where would you like to see further? and you're um, participating in it, but further research is the, the, the sort of basic science, the physiology, the treatments or this connection to common chronic diseases like hormonal and, and stress and so forth. Where would you love to see more more research and or awareness and appreciation? Oh, all, all the above, everything. <laughs> I want to see it everywhere. Um, look, I, I think even beyond the research that has to be done, because I, yes, the research needs to be done in all those areas, right? We need, we need better tools to identify the mast cell. We need to be able to identify the specific things about each patient's mast cells and what treatment might work specifically for them. So if we could look at the mast cell and identify a mutation, let's say, in that mast cell, and then we can say, oh, this treatment, chromalin, works really well for this, or chromalin uh, doesn't work really well for that, yes. right? that would make it much easier. So that's on the horizon, believe it or not. I think that's, that's something that we've, 
you know, been looking at, and we have colleagues who are looking at um, overseas um, in Germany. They're they're looking to see can we identify features of the mast cell that might help us figure out because right now it's re- we're really experimenting. You know, we're saying all right, try this first, and if that doesn't work, we try yeah. something else. So, um, so these are all areas I'd love to see. I think ultimately, what I'd love to see is patients being taken seriously. <laughs> patients with this condition being understood. Um, that's really, you know, what, what I see as, as the biggest issue. So many of my patients have to deal with other doctors who don't believe in this. I have a patient who, you know, was in the hospital recently and to convince the doctors of what they needed to do to treat this. Um, they just, they couldn't believe it. They just, the history of what the patient was going through just didn't make sense to them. And yet, if you understand MCAS, you understand that it does make complete sense, um, but it doesn't fit in the box, of the box mm. of traditional medicine. Um, and so I would love to see, um, you know, more uh, the research being focused on, on um, getting the answers and then educating, educating other doctors um, who are not as open, but need to understand that they're seeing almost maybe 20% of their of the patients coming in their office probably have this. Um, I just want them to get respect. And, and I, and it just really breaks my heart to, to, to see and hear how some patients are being treated because again, this, this disease, this syndrome is very varied, right? So it's, there's mild and the severe and the severe forms, mm-hmm. the, the way the patients can manifest again, sometimes defies what sounds normal and yet is, if you understand the mast cell. So that's what I would love to see. Just Fantastic. Yeah. Well, um, sounds like you're the real champion. I'm glad that you're fighting the good fight. And um, yeah, I'd love to catch up with you in the future to, to get further updates. So where can um, people follow you? Yeah, well, um, my uh, I'm working on my new website, um, but that will be AIM Center PM. Uh, personalized me- or you can probably even type out aim center for personalized medicine.com. So that's coming in the next month or so. Um, right now it's uh drtanyadempsey.com. That's my website and Dr. Tanya Dempsey on Facebook and, and Twitter and all that, that good stuff. And um, yeah, I'm trying to, to get the information out there and um, you know, we have a few, maybe another um, uh, publication coming out, um, in the next few months, um, to look out for. I can't, I can't say it's a secret, but it's a good yeah. one. And I think it's um, going to be something that, um, will sort of put another piece of the puzzle together, um, for patients who are, who are struggling with this. So we're excited about that. Um, and so that's, that's it. Brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll make sure we, um, broadcast the news when we receive it on the the research uh dr dempsey thank you very much for your time i know it's getting late and sounds like it's getting cold and the storm is brewing um so (laughs) i'll let you run away and um thanks again for your time and I, i love the chat thank you for useful links and resources make sure you check out the show notes The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.